Today we have Will Blot, founder of If How Now. Will advises companies large and small in people and culture best practices. He has quite the arsenal in his pocket, being trained as a psychologist and was the head of team and organizational development at Google Australia. Will, welcome to the show. Thanks, Will. So, you spent your whole career working in people domain. Tell me about your background. Okay, so it might sound a strange answer. I've um, come from the UK, been in Australia for, <laughs> this will be my 20th year. When I was at school, one of the things I remember early on was this sense of, I was about seven at the time I changed schools. I thought, wow, if you're not in this top, they read out the top 10 in each school subject. And I thought, wow, if you're not in this top 10, you feel invisible. And I was only in a class of 22 at the time. So for some reason, I made that mean that I didn't want to feel invisible in life. I big value of mine is equality. So I decided to start applying myself and always thinking at what does the other person want to hear? And arguably, although I went to a, a quite a traditional school, that prompted my interest in psychology. I always really enjoyed human biology um, at school. So took a gap here, went to New Zealand. That fostered my desire to, to live and work overseas post-university. Did a Bachelor of Science of Psychology at University of Birmingham. I worked for one of the UK's fastest growing recruitment companies at the time in the technology space. That taught me a lot about urgency, qualification, understanding others' sort of needs, how to influence, how to spot opportunities in the market. And after two years, thought, well, it was only supposed to be a one-year plan, decided to go off into travel, and that brought me to Australia and worked for an organizational psychologist here for a year. Through him, I did some consulting work to Unilever that then led to a full-time role looking at their graduate program and, and early stage leadership development. That then became a springboard to my time at Google. One of the skills that I've learned was very much the importance of facilitation because you're getting others on board, often with different perspectives, different fears, different concerns. You're inspiring people around a mutual purpose and vision and values. You're looking to spark and facilitate diversity of ideas, which if uh, not handled sensibly can become conflict of personality, but you actually need to have that artificial harmony does not lead to effective team outcomes. And then steering people towards an aspirational, audacious sort of future with stretch goals, holding yourself and others to account and always asking what if. So presently, and for a number of years, I've founded and led a boutique consultancy, If How Now, and that's really built on a coaching premise. Interesting. So why should companies or entrepreneurs put people and culture first? When you look at the statistics in Australia, about 50% of businesses fail within the first three years. When you think about what's the most precious resource, it's actually the people in the team, because obviously without people, you don't have a business. Furthermore, arguably, and to build on something that Peter Drucker said, he said your best employees are volunteers because tomorrow they could choose to volunteer their time elsewhere. I would actually argue every employee nowadays is a volunteer. They could choose to invest their time and energy elsewhere. And there's always going to be a Netflix or another competitor playing top of markets when it comes to attract and retain top talent. Hmm. So if as a founder or a senior leader in a business, you don't know what excites and motivates your team, what their strengths are, their work style preference, what their career development aspirations are, and how you can foster an experience that every day enables them to come to work, do their best work, feel engaged and empowered, the opportunity to learn, 
then really you're relying on hope as a strategy that they'll show up to work tomorrow. So people and culture thinking about it first. If you do that right, you can co-create and evolve a culture that is engaging, that enables people to do their best work and feel that sense of ownership. If it's an afterthought, then actually it can be extremely costly. And there's lots of research about from the Society for Human Resource Management, um, from Gallup and others, where if you have disengagement or even attrition, it's a huge cost to the business and sometimes as much as 250% of someone's salary. Wow. So that's very interesting. People may be present, but whether or not they actually put in the effort or the passion, that's entirely different. It's sort of being like volunteers. Exactly. And if you look at, for example, the Gallup research that they've conducted over an extended period of time, the amount of active disengagement in the workplace is actually quite high. Um, yeah. Gallup have found that if you have someone who's actively disengaged, the cost of the business is 34% of their salary at that point in time. And they actually found a minority of employees at any given stage are actually engaged in what they're doing. So for a lot of companies, it's one way that you can get a competitive advantage is just thinking, what kind of environment would I want to be a part of? Given that we spend more hours at work than doing anything else in our life, there are certain motivating levers that are important to most people when they go to work. So companies thinking about how can we foster the best possible working environment? How can we nurture that for maybe an uncertain future will give them actually a compounding competitive advantage over time compared to those companies for whom they don't think about it or it's an afterthought because often the challenges they're then facing they're more reactive they're dealing with issues as and when they come up um, the psychology of the individual in those environments the culture it can be more fearful so people become more risk averse versus in progressive organizations with progressive cultures where people are thinking with more of an abundance and growth mindset. So that's when you see innovation impacts and growth opportunities. Hmm, interesting. So how does a company prime their employees to feel motivated then? For those of you who like to read, there's a seminal book, um, Daniel Pink's Drive, that came out last decade that summarized neatly all of the social science research around what leads to motivation in the workforce. And historically, people always thought it was Maslow's hierarchy of needs, safety, security, and so on. Last century, it moved more to carrot and stick, people thinking that we need to offer incentives, so the higher the bonus or performance-related pay, the better the performance would be. And actually, all of the research shows that you have worsening performance. Nowadays, how people think about what leads to motivation at the workplace, um, Daniel Pink summarized three things to which I would add a fourth. He said, first of all, there's a sense of autonomy. So people feel that they can go to work. They have a say as to what they work on, when they do it, who they do it with, and how they go about it. So nowadays you see companies that are very flexible and they, they trust their teams rather than constantly looking over their shoulders or micromanaging. Second thing he said is a chance to develop mastery. So that's when you're in the flow of something and time just passes really quickly and the chance to continually get better at something. It's interesting when you look at one of the reasons most often why people leave an organization it's due to a lack of learning and development opportunities and even in small startups you can think quite creatively about well how can we foster on the job learning and connection say with mentors or other learning resources so that people are learning the third thing that he highlighted was this importance of purpose so as i've said before we spend more time at work than doing anything else in our lives. So we need to have a sense of meaning. 
um, at the end of our lives when we look back on you know what did i what difference did i make and so nowadays how we see that in organizations do they have a clear sense of vision so what's their core ideology their values and their purpose why do they exist and some of the best companies really advocate and communicate the vision why they exist the difference they're looking to make in the world and that translates not just at the business level but at the team level and at the individual level what will i be doing how is it helping to shape that so dan pink found those three things autonomy mastery and purpose that's what social science um, showed i would say a fourth thing that underlies everything which is to what extent do you leave your people feeling valued at the end of every day interesting um, so I'm not sure if you've heard of the civil rights activist, poet and writer, Maya Angelou. Unfortunately, she died recently. Mm, I've heard of her. And she's well known for saying something, and I'll paraphrase her probably badly. People rarely remember what you say and do, but they typically remember how you left them feeling. And so this ties into the emotional intelligence. So actually, your long-term impact as a leader in an organization, so whether you're a founder with just a few, one or two employees, or business where you've got tens, hundreds, or thousand employees, it's how you leave people feelings. So that comes down to the stories that you tell, so how you communicate. But even, even in difficult day-to-day -day situations, let's say you need to give someone feedback, do you do it in a way that leaves that person feeling more valued after the conversation? And if you don't know your team, their hopes, their fears, their aspirations, their work style preferences, what they want to do next, what's happening in their broader life, then how can you possibly give them meaningful feedback that's valuable, that leaves them feeling valued, even when you've had a difficult conversation? Interesting. So people may have the same values, but how do they have diversity of thought without having conflict? First of all, you have to have something that's called psychological safety. Not sure if phrase that's become more prominent in the last couple of years. In essence, psychological safety is feeling safe to express an opinion potentially express in a divergent opinion and resolve conflict when it occurs. And all of the research around the importance of diversity is the more diverse teams you have, actually the better decisions they make. So how do you, what are some of the ways of achieving diversity of thought so that you get constructive conflict of ideas, not conflict of personality? Well, first of all, understand everyone's different work style preferences. So there's a variety of tools nowadays that many companies use you know myers-briggs or some personality assessment or some variation personally i'm a big fan of keeping it simple because in the heat of a moment when you maybe have a different opinion with someone else it's too easy to be emotionally triggered and feel defensive because you feel that your value has been threatened whereas what you want to do in that situation is just notice that oh okay there's a difference of opinion in what way do we think similarly and in what way do we think differently and when there's a difference how can i flex my style seek to understand the other person and see where they're coming from try and find some mutual purpose by sharing my own perspective so that we can then get aligned and so simple tools around understanding differences in work style preference um, can be extremely powerful because that way in the moment even when people are triggered they'll become self-aware that there's a potential conflict they can figure out with a simple model, how do I flex my style and meet the other persons to where they're coming from and then get us both back on track. And if you don't have that psychological safety and you then don't engage in healthy conflicts of ideas, then you can't then do the next steps that are critical to high-performing teams. So 
What are some common mistakes that companies often make when assessing people and culture? And especially if we have, say, less than five people. So first of all, probably having clarity. Why does the business exist? What are its vision and values? Where is the company now? Where is it looking to get to? So people have that big picture vision. Then thinking about, well, what role do they have and how does it fit within that vision? As people then come on board to the business, what are the secrets to performing quickly with impact? So if I was the fifth employee, I'd be wondering, okay, for the, the previous employees or the current employees that you have, how have they gotten up to speed quickly? So one thing that a lot of companies, I believe, don't do enough is have sufficient clarity around, okay, what does success look like for you in the individual? Because most people join a business and they're thinking, okay, you know, they're highly excited. They feel passionate because they've been sold into the vision of the organization. And so they're keen to do their best work and show that they can have impact. So if there isn't sufficient and frequent check-ins between the manager and the employee, you're likely some deviation because that person doesn't yet know the organization well and how to get things done. And so that can lead to missteps in the probation periods or even a sense of I'm doing lots of work that isn't being recognized or value or even from the manager's perspective, this person's focusing on the wrong things. So that alignment early on is really important to drive structure and clarity. But then it's those other things that I spoke about. So what I would say to every company is think about the employee life cycle. So how you look to attract them, the hiring experience that you give them, the onboarding experience. Are they clear around just some basic things around HR sort of policies? So in these initiatives, where do I need to go? Who's my point of contact if I have questions about X, Y, and Z? And then clarity around any processes that they might be expected to follow you know what if we were to create a, a culture where every role in the future was filled by an internal referral where everyone could come and do their best work where they could positively impact the communities in which we operate and had felt they had the skills and support to do so you know if that was the case how might we go about that so what are some next steps that we can take? So actually, when you're clear with people and culture, the steps that you can take can be extremely simple. You're thinking back from the future. Um, you're thinking with an abundance mindset and a growth mindset. If you don't think about people and culture first, you can spend so much time being pulled in all sorts of directions due to symptoms that could be addressed if you'd had a strong people and culture strategy to begin with. Absolutely. Well, Will, thank you so much for being a guest here at the Genesis of Startups. It was incredibly valuable having you talk about the importance of people and culture, more specifically how organizations can build and motivate teams, foster high engagement and performance, and how to make employees feel valued. To our listeners, I hope you found it incredibly valuable. If you'd like to learn more about Will Blot or the Genesis of Startups, drop us a line on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. Until next time.